This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 26, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. It's been nearly 20 years since the Exxon Valdez disaster. The Supreme Court this week has finally weighed in on whether certain damages issued following the disaster were appropriate. Ilya Shapiro, senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, comments on the high court's ruling. The jury awarded $5 billion in punitive damages against Exxon. And remember, this is on top of the $2.1 billion that Exxon had already spent on cleanup efforts, another $900 million that it paid in civil fines uh, to the United States and uh, the state of Alaska, and another $300 million it had paid in uh, compensation to private parties. So this suit ties up all the remaining claims. And this particular issue is just on the punitive damages, not on the compensation. Generally, what are punitive damages? They're meant to deter future conduct. Um, uh, they're as, as defined by the terms. They don't compensate in any way. They're, they're just meant to set an example. Sometimes they're called exemplary da- damages and to punish uh, so as future um, uh, defendants don't do that action. So anyhow, the jury awarded $5 billion on appeal uh, that was uh, reduced to, again, this is in the state court, reduced to um, $2.5 billion, and it came up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, uh, first of all, and I'll talk about uh, the issue within this later, but tied 4-4, because Justice Alito uh, was recused, they tied 4-4 on the issue of whether Exxon, the corporation, could be even liable for punitive damages on a theory of derivative liability, meaning Joe Hazelwood, the the captain of the Exxon Valdez, was reckless, was the finding. Uh, Can Exxon, and he was liable for punitive damages, can Exxon also be liable for punitive damages, even though it was its its agent, its uh, manager that was doing this um, this, uh, this harm, this recklessness. And because Alito was recused and the other justices split evenly, 4-4, four, four, uh, what happens is the lower court, the Ninth Circuit's opinion, is affirmed uh, summarily without any precedential value. So in future, you can't say that the Supreme Court holds that there is such a thing as derivative liability. Uh, and it's unfortunate that it's split evenly like this because of the recusal, because the lower courts, the circuit courts, are split themselves. So we have a continuation of uh, uncertainty on this area. And I should add that this is all under maritime law. So most punitive damages cases that we hear about in the states, you know, run, run amok trial lawyers and all the rest of it, is from regular state tort claims. This is maritime law, and specifically the court accepted the case purely on the basis of maritime law, which is federal, I should add. Okay, so that's, the, that's one thing. Secondly, once they decided that they could go ahead and apply uh, punitive damages under a theory of derivative liability, um, they found that these damages were, first of all, not preempted by the Clean Water Act, because the Clean Water Act exists to regulate uh, fines and criminal penalties and so forth for pollution and, and certain things like this. So, But in finding that, they essentially say that punitive damages in this case are fine. Are fine. Well, they're not preempted by Clean Water okay. Act and this they have to uphold this Ninth Circuit derivative liability finding. Finally, um, they found that the $2.5 billion was excessive. So they vacated that award. They said it was excessive under federal maritime law. So under the 
common law that applies to maritime cases, uh, admiralty law sometimes it's, it's called, um, this was excessive. And they looked at the whole panoply of punitive damages awards and decided that uh, a verbal formulation of what kind of limit can be put on, on punitive damages would not suffice because where they've put that in non-maritime cases, that hasn't led to a reduction in punitive damages claims. They keep cropping up uh, under constitutional and other um, challenges. So here they said they looked at the, at, at the whole panoply of uh, punitive damages awards and found that the median award was about a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning whatever the compensa compensatory damages were, uh, the median punitive damage award was the same. So essentially doubling the compensatory damages for the punitive damages amount. And indeed, that's what they did here and reduced the $2.5 billion punitive damages to uh, $507 million, which was the, the same as what the compensatory damages were. And that, that result was by a 5-3 decision. So again, that was narrow, but they managed to avoid the 4-4 split. Okay. Justice Alito recused himself because he owned Exxon stock, which led to this 4-4 four four decision, affirmation, default. Non-decision, non indeed. This default affirmation. What is the relevance of, uh, of ownership of stock related to judges, and what was the law on that? Yeah, that, it's, it's really unfortunate, and it, it, it happened in several other cases this term that I'll go into shortly. There's a federal statute that says judges have to recuse themselves if a corporate party appears before them in which they own stock. And it doesn't matter whether it's one share of a penny stock or millions and millions of dollars worth. And most of these cases... Um, that especially at the high-profile level with the Supreme Court, what we've seen is um, some of the justices, most of them actually don't own stock, but we're talking about several hundred to several thousand dollars. We're not talking a lot of money, um, and it's, uh, you know, it, I say it's unfortunate because judges have lots of potential conflicts. They have their political opinions, they have their backgrounds, who they've worked for in the past, their friends, etc. Uh, owning uh, even $10,000 worth of stock in a particular company when uh, you know, you're at the pinnacle of your career and are known for integrity and are under the spotlight and are millionaires, let's face it, chances are everybody on the court is a millionaire, is not, doesn't to me and to most people look like a real conflict. But nevertheless, both the federal statute exists and it's a, a, a canon of judicial ethics on top of it. Um, to try to remedy this, uh, a lot of pundits and scholars have, have first of all, suggested that uh, judges just sell off their, their stock if this is going to be the case. And uh, this happened earlier this year in, in the Stone Ridge case, which we talked about, you might recall, a few months ago when it was decided. That ended up being decided 5-3, so we didn't have a 4-4 split. Breyer, Justice Breyer, was still recused because he owned stock in one of the companies. Justice Roberts originally, Chief Justice Roberts, had originally been recused in that case because he owned stock, but he, when he found out that Breyer was also being recused, uh, he sold his stock so he could get back into the case. So that was an unrecusal. Very uh, unusual and... Uh, frankly, if we didn't have these rules, we wouldn't have these strange things that itself uh, themselves call uh, into some question uh, what's going on behind the scenes at the court. Um, so this, this happens again and again. Now, Congress has started to act. Uh, ideally, I would say, and many others who have recognized this problem would say, is that you should just have a rule that all, no justice, at least, forgetting the lower courts for now, no justice can own shares of stock. Mutual funds are fine, but let's just get rid of these penny-ante recusals. That rule doesn't yet exist. There, there's some rumbling that it might happen. But for now, uh, less than two years ago, in December of 06, 
the president signed a law that allowed justices, uh, and I believe judges as well, to sell stock to avoid having to be recused and not having to take a capital gains tax hit on those sales to encourage them uh, to avoid recusal in that manner. On this Exxon Valdez case, what is the implication for punitive damages in general? Um, Well, as I said, this is a narrow maritime law holding. So directly, it's not as much as, as would have been the case had the court accepted Um, the cert petition on the constitutional issue, either due process or what I think is is probably the the better way of handling punitive damages claims under the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment. That's the same one that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment in the criminal context. It also prohibits excessive fines. And historically, as Justice O'Connor detailed in one of her previous punitive damages dissents, excessive fines were treated as punishment. And therefore, if you're going to look at the constitutional level of punitive damages, that shouldn't be done under uh, what's called substantive due process, which is kind of a controversial issue. And indeed, Justice Scalia and Thomas, who could be seen as, um, you know, given their general conservative politics, being against excessive punitive damages, but they find that it's not a puni- it's not a constitutional issue. It should be handled in the legislature. Um, but she, Justice O'Connor, in, in using this excessive fine clause, um, I think points the right way that uh, that should be handled on the, under the Eighth Amendment. But in general, getting back to your original question, um, you, you see the frustration on the justices' parts that uh, the lower courts are not following uh, their general advice on limiting these uh, awards. So they, 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 they decided that they have to... Um, uh, find a, a ratio themselves, and they defined it in this case as being one-to-one uh, punitive to compensatory damages. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. You can order your copy of Cato's Supreme Court Review at cato.org. <laughs>